Great, good morning. Please do uh, keep that passage open. That would be great. Uh, 1,145, verse 1. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Shall we pray as we look at this passage together? Lord God, we do praise you uh, for your word. We thank you uh, for it. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak to us this morning through it, by your spirit. Uh, Lord, that you would make us uh, mature in Christ, bring unity uh, amongst us. For the glory of Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you uh, treat me like an adult? That's the cry, surely, of every teenager. I well remember asking it of my parents. And what is the answer that you usually get? I will treat you like an adult when you start behaving like an adult. It's true, isn't it? A 15-year-old girl can, can look the part. She can dress like an adult. She can apply makeup like an adult. She can have a cigarette hanging out of her mouth like an adult. It's possible to look like an adult but still be a child. The question this morning for us is this. Are we adult in our behaviour spiritually? Are we adults in our behaviour spiritually? Or are we still behaving like children? Many of us will have been Christians for, for many years. Maybe we think we've grown up uh, spiritually. We've made it. That is what the Corinthians thought, the Corinthian church. They prided themselves on how spiritually mature they were. Their abundant gifts bore great witness to that fact. They spoke in tongues, prophesied, healed. They'd made it. And yet, to their great frustration, Paul, their spiritual father, who led them to Christ, he treated them still like children. Mark Twain once said this, he said this, Mark Twain, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Well, the Corinthians, they were that boy of 14, uh, because they thought they'd outgrown their their old man Paul. Paul had preached about the cross. That was childish. The cross was childish. It's fine when they were spiritual babies, but now they had grown up. It was as if, as teenagers, they were being asked to watch, in their eyes, Peppa Pig, or, or Thomas the Tank Engine, or something similar. It was time to move on to something more adult. And that, in their eyes, was provided to them by these teachers who had arrived in Corinth after Paul had left, that they spoke words of wisdom, uh, much better than Paul's foolish words uh, of the cross. They'd left Paul behind. What a shame that Paul hadn't been able to keep up, that he hadn't grown up with them. You know what, Paul? He wasn't even a really great preacher. He should face facts, accept their maturity, stop treating them like... Uh, school children. Well, we've reached the beginning of uh, chapter 3 uh, of Paul's, uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And if there was a buzzword to chapters 1 and 2, I think it was this. It was wisdom. Wisdom is, is the buzzword. In chapter 2, Paul called the Corinthians back to the message of the cross. The message which is God's wisdom. The cross is wisdom dismissed by the world, only understood 
uh, spiritually. We need a miracle of God's grace if we're to un- understand to have our eyes opened to the message of the cross. Spiritual people understand God's message of wisdom, but not worldly people, says Paul. Having made that point, what does Paul do uh, at the beginning of chapter 3? He takes up a new theme, a theme of spirituality. So if wisdom was the buzzword of chapters 1 and 2, spirituality is the buzzword of chapters 3 and 4. Paul addresses what it means to be spiritual. What is biblical gospel spirituality? Because wisdom and spirituality were linked in the minds of the Corinthians. Their faith was the new wisdom. Uh, And that was the key to real spirituality. What is their issue with Paul? That he just doesn't have a deep enough message. He doesn't have, in their eyes, a profound enough message. But they are made mature by a greater wisdom. A sort of super spirituality that operated on a totally different plane uh, in their eyes. Paul Paul confronts head-on this issue of spirituality, and I think there are two principles uh, that we can draw from these first nine verses. Principles that impact the Corinthian church in correcting uh, their thinking, their errors, challenging their complacency, uh, and two principles that should do uh, the same for us. First principle is this. Gospel spirituality challenges worldliness. Gospel spirituality challenges worldliness. Do you see the devastating message of Paul in verse 1? Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. The very people that set themselves up as spiritual show by their actions they are only babies. Mere infants still Worldly. I was reading that the theologian Don Carson has written that few passages are abused by preachers and writers more than this one. So with that great encouragement, uh, what do we make uh, of these words? I think let's note two things here. First, these misguided people were Christians. I think that's true because believers... They're believers, we know that, because they're described as believers, brothers, and of being in Christ, uh, verse 1. At the end of chapter 2, Paul says they have the mind uh, of Christ. The issue seems to be, doesn't it, they're not using uh, that mind. They're born again, but their behavior is somehow inconsistent with that new status. Paul says, because you are claiming a super-spirituality, you are showing you are still worldly. In complaining that the message of the cross is too simple, is too basic, does not go deep enough, you're showing your immaturity. That is devastating, isn't it, for someone who thinks they're super spiritual. They were like it when Paul was with them, verse 2. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready for it. They're still like it. The Corinthians are still in nursery or play school, not yet on solid food, mere infants. Teaches us, doesn't it, that it is possible for Christians to be stunted uh, in their development, for whole churches, fellowships to be affected uh, by this syndrome. Corinth was a church full of knowledge, full of gifts, 
full of speaking, yet tragically characterized by childishness. I'm at that stage with my own children when uh, things are pretty good, they're pretty sweet. The children are great, well-behaved, affectionate, want to hang out with me most of the time. Uh, And sometimes I think, you know, it'd be great if you could bottle this state, keep it uh, forever. And yet surely we know, don't we, in the real world, that would be tragic. It would be terrible for them to remain as children forever. Of course they need to grow up. It must be the same with Christians. We cannot be content with childishness. For Paul, that is synonymous with worldliness, with the flesh. It's drifting back uh, to, to the world's way of living, acting like mere men who do not have God's spirit. That would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? The Corinthian problem is not with the message, it's not with a messenger, it's with the hearers. They are not able to cope with the demands of a spirituality that focuses on the cross, that focuses on Christ crucified. Second thing to note about these words. Paul says the divisions among the Corinthians are the indisputable evidence of their immaturity. Just look at verse 3. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among, among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? We looked at this two or three weeks ago, back in uh, chapter, chapter one, didn't we? In exalting human leaders, in putting them uh, on pedestals, lining up behind them, if you like, in antagonism to each other. That is a worldly attitude. That is no different to what the world does. One of the really interesting things about this general election campaign uh, that is going on is the extent of focus on party leaders. It's all about the, the personality, the person. It's Theresa May's team. Conservative has been obliterated and replaced with Theresa. Most of the focus on the Labour Party is on Jeremy Corbyn uh, as an individual. The inclination of the world is to focus on individuals and divide accordingly. And there's a danger of of that way of thinking, infiltrating uh, the church. In Corinth, the focus on the exaltation of human leaders leads to division, and that is evidence of their immaturity. It leads to jealousy, it leads to quarrelling. It shows they've not yet come to terms uh, with the cross. They can't take in more because they've not yet got uh, the fundamental lesson. You probably know the, the well-known illustration of the work of the cross. The word sin has in the middle of it I. I in the middle of sin. It's about me, me, me. I am in the middle. What happens on the cross? The I is crossed out uh, by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. To, to bow before a crucified Saviour is to acknowledge my own wretchedness, uh, the fact I deserve nothing uh, but wrath, the fact that I deserve an eternity separated from him, to cast myself on the rich mercy of grace. As the old hymn puts it, nothing in my hand to bring, simply to your cross I cling. 
Surely if we embrace the gospel, if the gospel gets under our skin, it must end the focus on I. I, 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 me, me, me. End our human pride. It must end our quarrelling. End our factionalism. End our division. Because, because the jealousy, the quarrelling in Corinth, it was evidence that the self had not been crucified uh, with Christ. That they, yes, they're believers in Jesus, but, but the working of the gospel in their lives, it was deficient. Surely this is true of us, is it not? We compare ourselves with others, and we're jealous. Why should God bless them and not me? We're quarrelsome. It's going to be my way or it's the highway. We're critical. We take fellow Christians down, maybe just subtly over coffee, but we know what we're doing. These things come naturally to me. Yet they show, don't they, that the cross is not really at work in our lives because at root we're saying God isn't fair. God doesn't know best. God doesn't really love me. God can't be relied upon. I know better than God. I will be the centre of my life. Isn't that just how a baby behaves? I want my milk, and I want it now. We're not going to agree on everything, are we? We will not agree on all things, but how we handle our differences will show whether we're worldly or mere infants. Where we see jealousy and quarrelling among us, then the cross is not, it can't be at the centre. Where self-centred desires, where personal agendas come to the fore, it's actually a sign that we've not really understood the gospel. It's not yet got under our skin. The gospel challenges our self-centredness. It challenges uh, our worldliness. Second, the gospel, gospel spirituality models servanthood. Gospel spirituality models uh, servanthood. When I was at school, I was locked up at boarding school, the dormitories were always covered uh, with lots of posters. Everyone had posters of people they worshipped, a good number highly inappropriate. Uh, fine for a teenager, but if the house of an adult was covered in posters of Che Guevara or Elvis Presley, whoever it may be, you'd think, this is pretty, this is pretty weird. This is pretty pathetic. When are they going to grow up, you'd think? The Corinthians were a bit like that. They, they were groupies who were fanatically loyal to a particular Christian hero. So divisions were based not so much on doctrine as on personality. We can be childish, can't we, in the same way? Uh, so our divisions might not be on core issues like the gospel, but disagreements on, on more minor things, but which lead to deep rifts. We split, we divide into factions, we adopt a figurehead, we adopt an anti-figurehead, and we lay into each other, jealousy and quarrelling among us. Paul says, when we behave like that, we are being immature and childish. We need to grow up. Look at verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants 
to whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Paul says, doesn't he, that you need to understand that Christian leaders, they are servants of God. Paul established the church, Apollos seemed to follow him, took on the leadership. There's no evidence of tension between them, yet groups gather around each of them, perhaps almost to the point of idolatry. Focus on human leaders, human wisdom, human hope, uh, rather than God. But that is foolish, because Christian leaders are just servants. Do you see how Paul illustrates that in verse 6? I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. Paul is saying Christian leaders are in of themselves insignificant. It is God, God who does the real work through his servants. He is the only one in the end who can give life to a seed. Unless God gives life, then all the planting, all the watering, all the tending, it's in vain. Verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. This surely is a warning again, as, as in chapter 1, against putting our confidence uh, in Christian leaders. It's so natural for us to do so, but natural is not spiritual. Uh, as we wait for a new rector, that is surely a temptation that we face. But God is the one we should be excited about. God is the one we should want to follow, not a Christian leader. It's so easy to focus on a leader and be discouraged. To have experience of a leader and be discouraged. It is so easy for us to turn those who brought us to Christ, who've helped us uh, in our Christian walk, who we anticipate great things from, to turn them into heroes, to hang on their every word, to expect something superhuman from them. But these people, says Paul, they're only servants through whom we believed. Without God, they are nothing. We want to elevate a a Christian leader. Very often Christian leaders enjoy being elevated. And what happens? We all crash down together. Likewise, a Christian leader we may have pitted ourselves against. They, They cannot be an enemy if they are involved in gospel ministry. Perhaps we don't agree with everything they say. Perhaps we don't like everything that we hear. But if a leader preaches Christ and him crucified, he is on the same team. He's being used by the same master to serve the same purpose, the ingathering of the harvest of God. It's also a warning, isn't it, for all of us uh, against pride. Any of us involved uh, in Christian ministry, if we see any fruit in work we're involved in, no credit should go to the leader. God has done it. If we've led someone to faith in Christ, we shouldn't feel proud because God has done it. If we've led a group that has helped someone grow in their faith, We should not be self-satisfied because God has done it. It is all about God. 
Instead, do you see that gospel spirituality stresses the unity of Christians? Do you see that in verse 8? The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. The planter and the waterer, they're one. There can be no competition, no factionalism between leaders, between preachers, no comparing. If we're one, we're serving the one crucified Lord. God, he gives us, doesn't he, different tasks. He gives us different opportunities. We've got different gifts, contributions to make that will be distinctive. Every piece of Christian service matters. And each will be rewarded. Paul is saying that there's no kind of table of merit here. God loves to reward. His criteria is faithful labor. Hard work for his glory. God honors all laborers, all faithful servants. Doesn't verse 9 sum it up so well? For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. God owns the field. We simply work in his field. We all belong only to God. Leaders don't own the church. They don't own this church. Never have, never will. None of us own the church. No matter how much time we've been here or the money we've poured into our life together. It's God's field, God's building. God produces the crop. God selects the laborers. God allots the task. God rewards the faithful. So how mature are we as a congregation? Where does this teaching take us to? What would Paul say of us? Mere infants? Worldly? Or servants who are committed to the Lord? The Lord who is master. Servants who seek to be faithful to the task he's given us, knowing he is the infallible judge of every heart. He is the one who loves to reward those who are faithful to him. Gospel spirituality models servanthood. We are only going to be faithful, aren't we, if we grasp the center of our spirituality. Only God makes things grow. Only God brings spiritual life. How does he do that? Only through Christ who is crucified, who has risen, who is ascended, who is glorified. Surely we can resolve together. No more quarreling. Let's end factionalism. Let's end the focus on personalities. That natural, that unspiritual way of thinking. Let's rejoice in Jesus Christ as Lord, him crucified, and serve wholeheartedly for his sake. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the, uh, the direct uh, teaching of Paul. Uh, Lord, the way that uh, this teaching cuts to the heart, uh, challenges us, uh, exposes us, uh, moves to our heart. And Lord, we pray that uh, we would be people who would uh, seek maturity in Christ. Lord, that we would desire uh, focusing on uh, Christ and him crucified, that we would long for that to work deep into our lives, that you would change us, change our hearts, mould us, turn us into the servants that you would have us be. Lord, we ask that by your spirit you'd bring unity and keep unity 
uh, amongst us, we pray. That that might be something distinctive to the world uh, and bring glory to Jesus, we pray. Amen.